This is the STEM Read Podcast. Welcome to the STEM Read Podcast. I'm your host, Jillian King Cargyle. I'm a writer, a book lover, and the director of NIU's STEM Read. And I'm Dr. Kristen Brennison, otherwise known as Hot Pink Tech. I'm an engineer and an educator and the director of professional development for NIU STEAM. Today's episode is Games, Goldfish, and Greatness. Our guests are Jennifer L. Holm, author of The 13th Goldfish, The Third Mushroom, and several other books and graphic novels for young readers. We're also joined by experts from Filament Games. We've got Dan Norton, Chief Creative Officer and Co-Founder of Filament, and Ethan Psycho, producer of the latest game, Breaking Boundaries in Science. So Kristen, what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, when I was really little, I wanted to be a dancer. A dancer for money? <laughs> sure. Professional dancer on stage. Um, later, I think that changed to something that seemed a bit more realistic, a scientist of some sort. How about you? What did you want to be? I wanted to be a movie star. A movie star? Yeah, not not like an actress, a movie star. Like, you know, straight to the top. <laughs> <laughs> Because I loved movies. I did do acting when I was little from watching movies. I wanted to be a district attorney and I wanted to be a marine biologist. And as I've said before, the kind of marine biologist that fights giant squid with chainsaws, you know, the the real hard science kind. Right, right. The imp- doing important work. Right. With chainsaws. Yes. So then I kind of realized that the thing that I loved about all these jobs was the stories around them, the stories that I'd heard about them from movies and from books. And so I realized that my real passion was in storytelling, and I pursued that through first filmmaking and then creative writing. I think that people take meandering paths toward the things that they loved. Today, we're talking to three different people who all had meandering paths toward what they were passionate about, but they've got some interesting things to say about passion in general and about believing in what might be possible in your career, in your life. It sounds very self-helpy now when I uh, when I say it like that. <laughs> That's what we're about here on the STEM Read Podcast. <laughs> we want to help you be the best you you can be. That's right. And help your students be the best <laughs> them they can be. So we were really excited to talk with Jennifer L. Holm. She is the author of The 13th Goldfish, The Third Mushroom, and several other books for young readers. The thing that we love about these books is that, well, first of all, they're they're wacky. The story is about a young girl whose grandfather, through a series of experiments, because he's a scientist, turns himself young again. He becomes a junior high aged boy, and he starts going to school with her as he figures out what he can do about this situation. There's a lot of interesting things happening in the book about Ellie trying to decide if she's more of a scientist like her grandfather or more of an artist like her mother, and just learning about him and his passion for science at the same time. Our interview with Jennifer was also conducted with Melanie Koss, director of the Children's Literature Teaching Collection at Northern Illinois University. Melanie is a friend of the show who has also appeared in a few different episodes. She'll be on the show later in the season talking with us about everything from pangolins to diversity in children's books. 
And after we talk to Jennifer Holm, we'll also talk to the creators of Breaking Boundaries in Science. So, Kristen, do you want to give us a little rundown of that? Filament Game is an educational video developer, been around for well over a decade, and they're known for not just educational games, but educational games that are fun. Their newest experience, Breaking Boundaries in Science, is a virtual reality experience exploring the working places of three well-known female scientists, Jane Goodall, Marie Curie, and Grace Hopper. And you learn the story of these three amazing women through exploring their spaces. So it's a really interesting way to look at the lives of these women, not just through their great accomplishments, but through who they were and the stories they have to tell. We'll get a little bit deeper into the ideas behind the experience and a look into the mind of these game developers who do this for a living. All of our guests today had really interesting things to say about the connections between art and STEM and the ways that they've found to pursue their passions. Here's our interview with Jennifer L. Holm. At STEM Read, we're really interested in authors' origin stories, so we like to find out what kind of student you were. What did you think about school when you were growing up? I was a good student, I would say. I mostly loved reading and English, and I liked history a lot. I was a big fan of history, and I would say I was, you know, an A student. Did you always know you wanted to be an author, or did that take you by surprise? No, no. So I came from a big family. I am one of five children. I am the middle child and the only girl. And my parents were both in medicine. My late father was a pediatrician and my mother was a pediatric nurse. So we came from a very science-heavy family. In fact, my grandmother had been a nurse. My grandfather had been a surgeon. And so we definitely grew up thinking you need to have a practical job. And as a child, I did not in any way imagine that becoming a writer would be a practical job. (laughs) So I was a huge bookworm. I loved to read. And maybe in some dream, I would love to have been a writer. But I think when I was young, no, we all had jobs in high school. It was just a very practical background. It just didn't seem like something that was obtainable to me. You grew up all around these practical jobs. Did you consider going into medicine then? So none of us ended up going into medicine. You know, you you grow up with a bunch of doctors and you know you don't want to do that. I think part of it was my dad was, he was a pediatrician in kind of the old days of medicine, which is to say that he was practicing medicine before took your kid to the emergency room. So when he had a sick child in his practice, he would go and meet them at his office in the middle of the night. And so my childhood memories are of the phone ringing constantly. He just had one partner. And he was very much a small town doctor in the sense that people like our neighbors would bring their kids over to our house when they were sick or if they had a gash in their head and he would suture them up at our kitchen table Hmm. or he would go over (laughs) to their house with his black doctor's bag. And it just seemed to me at the time that it was an exhausting job. And I guess my very light attempt at medicine was I was a candy striper. They used to let young teenagers be helpers in the hospital. And I was a candy striper at my dad's hospital in the emergency room for a summer. And that pretty much cured me of wanting to go into medicine. <laughs> so, Where did the story of the 14th goldfish come from? 
So ironically, it did come from my dad. You know, we grew up in this house of medicine, of always talking about medicine at the dinner table because it was a family business. My mom worked in my dad's office and they would come home and talk about work at the table, like what was happening at the office if somebody broke their leg, measles flying through the office, what was the latest stomach flu? And they were just very frank about this. It was very funny growing up in retrospect, hearing like what we talked about all the time. And he also was interesting in that he used to keep petri dishes with blood auger in our refrigerator to <laughs> culture bacteria when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. Sounds delightful. Because <laughs> we had so many children and he would always bring his work home, which is to say, you know, he would bring home what was ever was going around the office and then we would all get sick. All the kids would get oh. sick. <laughs> And so my mom refused to like bring the sick kids to the office. He would always treat us at home. And so he would culture us right there at home. <laughs> and then he'd, you know, put it in the refrigerator. So my entire childhood, I thought that everybody's dad, you know, kept like needles and petri dishes in the refrigerator. And it wasn't until like I went to college and brought home a friend for the weekend and they saw that and they were completely shocked to see blood auger plates next to the milk. Did were they labeled Uh, at all? Like do not eat? (laughs) No, not at all. You know, and we, and it was kind of the heyday of pharmaceuticals. So we had all of these, you know, we had shelves of free samples they used to give out, antibiotics, and our hall linen closet. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. I still have like erythromycin coasters on my desk <laughs> at, right now, and like C-Clor pens. So we grew up in this very kind of medical house. And what happened was the origin story is a little sad. So he died about. 10 years ago now, and he'd had Parkinson's, and so he'd had it quite a long time. And then he died suddenly. And after he died, my life kind of got turned around because then my husband's job moved, so we ended up kind of moving cross-country. I had a baby. All these things were happening at once. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't really quite have time to grieve. And then I'm on the West Coast and I'm in the car and I'm listening to NPR. It was like a local NPR station in California. And they were talking about, they had a bunch of scientists on and they were talking about life extension therapies. And they were mostly talking about developing drugs and therapies to battle cancer and Alzheimer's and, you know, life extending drugs. And then one scientist started mentioning that they were starting to do research, like basic research in to reversing aging in mice. And I thought, well, that's very different. It's one thing to like help somebody to live a better long age, but it's very different if you want to turn them young. And just then like kind of the image of my dad, like what if my dad was alive and he was in middle school, what would he be like? Would he be like an old man in this adolescent's (laughs) body? What would he be concerned about? And I figured he would probably be the same old guy who would say, take the trash out at night, you know, because if you don't take your trash out at night, you might forget to do it in the morning and then you're going to have two weeks of trash in your garage. You know, you'll have all (laughs) the same strange, funny ticks that you do when you get old. So that was the origin story. Well, that's very interesting and nice NPR uh, <laughs> NPR shout out too. Well, nice I think that's NPR. What I, <laughs> yeah, I think that's what I love most about Belvin's character is that it was like watching my grandpa or my dad in this kid's body, and it was hilarious. Yeah, I mean, he is definitely a fun character to write. In fact, my early drafts were it was pretty much you know all Melvin all the time. I had to kind of develop Ellie more. That was more of my writing process actually because. Mm-hmm. Yeah, such a big part of the story. I loved in the third mushroom how he wouldn't do his laundry and he would sneak it into their laundry. So that was an interesting dynamic, you know, fighting with his daughter 
while his granddaughter watched like well you're a kid now I get to take care of you and that's kind of an interesting family dynamic too Mm -hmm. and we say you know my grandmother is in her 90s now and she's living with my mom and my daughter says you know am I going to talk to you like that when you're old and I said when I'm as old as your great grandma yes you can you can order me around (laughs) yeah we talk in our family about that cycle of life my parents took care of me growing up and now as they're getting older it'll be my job to start taking care of them Mm -hmm. yeah and I think this book is very much a little bit about that so I've been obsessed with that my adult life because my dad is a much older father and he actually just for context he served in World War II and I had my children late in life so I'm like really like this sandwich generation like mom who I simultaneously caring for a newborn and had a very, very old parent. So I think a lot of people my age are dealing with that right now. So you didn't go into medicine. You became a writer. So in the books, there is an interesting relationship between arts and science. There is, you know, Ellie's mother, who is a theater director and very artistic, and her grandfather, who is very much a scientist and a scientifically minded person. So do you feel like there was a, a conflict in you? You know, those two different sides of you pulling against each other? There is probably a little bit of a conflict. I definitely notice in families where if it's like a strong art family or a strong science family, there's often a bit of disdain for the other field. And I kind of wanted Ellie to appreciate both sides. And even though I didn't go into science myself, I'm still incredibly interested in it. And, you know, I'm the one of all the kids in the family who got my dad's medical bags and all his old chemistry sets and all his slides and all of that. I'm the one who wanted all that stuff. Yeah. And so I still have always really been interested in it, just not enough to uh, go to medical school. (laughs) (laughs) That would be a big commitment. Yeah. Well, we're glad that you're a writer because we love your books. so. (laughs) So it works out for us. Yeah, I think that's interesting that, you know, play between the two comes out. And especially in the third mushroom, you get then Melvin pushing back and talking about how scientists really are creative and they really are passionate. And so so why did you kind of explore that more in the second book? Yeah, so I think that was part of I did want to push back on the white robed scientists. And when you go back and you research the lives of scientists, and I'm, I'm more interested in their personal lives, right? than their discoveries necessarily. They usually have like years of nothing happening, boring, boring years of sort of pursuing these single experiment type situations. And then overnight, they're a success. And in order to do that, you have to be extremely passionate, right? You have to really want to find something or change something. You have to be as passionate as a movie director. It just doesn't show. You don't have the movie to see when you're done. You know, you have a patent or maybe a pill. So it's just not as visually exciting. Right. We work with Argonne National Lab quite a bit for our program. And they say things like that, like the things that we're studying in our lab right now will have a big impact 30 to 40 years from now. So they might not even be alive when the results of their experiments really start to impact humanity. So I think that you're in it for the bigger picture and for the, you know, the longer term results is really interesting in science that you have to 
have that passion and it has to sustain itself for years and years with nothing happening. Yes, I agree. And also, so my father-in-law is also in medicine. He is a cancer researcher for the NIH. And so he's done this kind of basic research for years and years and years. And so just like you were saying, the fruits of his discoveries may not happen during his lifetime, but it will kind of roll into somebody else's discoveries. So one of the things that we really like to explore here is also the idea of failure and the importance of failure in the learning process. So I think that comes up in both of the books and also in the third mushroom. So that idea of mistakes, failure and discovery. Why do you think this is important in your books and why is it important for your readers? The whole concept of failure has been very interesting to me. I had many, many failures when I was a young person. So I didn't just become a writer. When I graduated from college, I got a job as a secretary. I remember when they had secretaries, not assistants. <laughs> you know, I just answered the phone. Very unglamorous. And then I worked in animation in New York City. And then I worked at an ad agency. So I had quite a lot of changes and tried things. And then when I became a writer, I started going into classrooms talking about my book and talking to kids about their writing. And one thing that struck me was that they were all frustrated by writing, about the process of writing. They wanted to have their first draft be their only draft. They just wanted to write it and be done. And for me, my first draft is just the starting point. It's just the very starting point. And I don't know where this I feel like there's this sort of this myth that creatives, they just sit down and they're Beethoven, but obviously that's not the case with anything. <laughs> and so I really wanted to kind of debunk that and show that actually making mistakes is super important. That's how you find out what you want to do. Absolutely. I think that writers, I'm, I write myself and there's a ton of failure in writing and there's often a very circuitous path to get you on the road to writing. So speaking of failing in writing, what is your writing process like? You said that your first draft is is kind of fast and loose. Is that what you describe it as? And where do you go from there? Yeah, I start now. I usually have a general idea of what I want the story to be. And I've started for the last five or six books, I've started to do something called a story arc, which I don't outline, but I kind of feel like I was struggling in getting a lot of writer's block. And I came up with this a few years ago, just by helping my kids do their homework. Actually, I, I said, okay, let's try to figure out the story you're trying to tell in your essay here. So I just take a piece of eight and a half by 11 paper. I draw an arc and then I just start doodling like this is the doodle of the beginning. This is what happens in the middle. This happens at the end. And then I just tape that by my desk. And as I have ideas, I just doodle the ideas on the page and just kind of let that ruminate for a little bit. And whenever I get stuck, I kind of can look back at it like visually like a roadmap. And then I will just start banging out the chapters. And my usually my first draft chapters are not very good but I'm a much better reviser. Like I'm happy as long as there's something on the page. I'm fine if I have to even rewrite the whole thing. But as long as there's something there, I am not as stressed out. So then I'll do a second revision and then many more. <laughs> so depending <laughs> on what my editor thinks. I find it funny that you, you talk about doodling because that comes up in the book too when they're making observations with the fruit flies and Melvin tells Ellie to draw it and sketch it. And he's like, even just doodle. And there again, it's that connection of 
understanding ideas through drawing it out and capturing what you see and where you're going to go. Yeah, no, so that came directly from my dad. I've seen that in a couple of doctors of his era. They would always, always be describing things to me by drawing it. And I finally learned why is because when he was talking to his patients, say he was talking to a mom about your child has asthma. You know, they didn't have computers then or iPads to show all these wonderful what's happening. He would just whip out his pad and he would say, this is what's happening. And he would always sort of draw it out for them. And it was very comforting and it would help to explain a scary medical situation. So he was always drawing for his patients and for us. And he used to draw on his hands a lot too. Sometimes (laughs) if he didn't have paper, he would just draw something like, this is what I mean. So it is, it's easier to understand something if you can see it and it's much less scary. And you also kind of can figure it out. Do you feel like you process information well through doodling? Is that why you've kind of gotten into graphic novels as well? I definitely love visuals. I grew up, you know, in a house of boys and the sort of graphic novel section, of course, contributes to this. But my graphic novel world kind of also kind of came out of like my dad. So in addition to being a doctor, he was a huge comic strip fan. So when we were growing up, we had these like bound volumes of Prince Valiant and Flash Gordon in our house. So I read those and love them. And then I also read what my brothers were reading, and they were reading, you know, all these classic superhero comics, Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, and and of course there was the funny pages. And I was kind of raised just like one of the boys. I thought I could do anything that they could do. And so it was quite frustrating to me that there weren't a lot of girl characters. Of course, there was Wonder Woman, and she is enjoying a great comeback, (laughs) but I didn't identify with her as an eight-year-old girl (laughs) from Mm -hmm. Pennsylvania, you know, for obvious reasons. And I just really wanted there to be like an equivalent of a character who was like Peter Parker, who my brothers could easily identify with because he's just a teenage boy. I wanted like a girl version of that. And that's where Baby Mouse grew out of. Thinking about, again, the 14th goldfish and the third mushroom, you have so many interesting scientists that you bring to light in the books. So how do you choose the scientists that you're going to highlight? That was really fun. And it's kind of this fine line of having some science in it, have the science come up unobtrusively and have the scientists kind of contribute to the book. For the 14th goldfish, the two scientists, I mean, Jonas Salk is my favorite scientist. He was easy. And (laughs) And he's um, such a fun character. And Oppenheimer was obviously (laughs) easy too. And I feel like people forget that was kind of an amazing time in science. They were contemporaries of each other, maybe not traveling in the same circles, but probably in some of the same circles. They were both in California. And yet their discoveries both had such different effects on the world and how they felt about their discoveries later in life. For the second book, I've always loved Alexander Fleming because of penicillin, because we had so much in the house growing up. (laughs) I love that he was just a slob, basically. (laughs) He did not keep a tidy lab, which I thought was pretty funny. I love the Herschels. I love Caroline and William, that they were this brother-sister team of scientists. Although, truthfully, she helped him a lot more, but it still is kind of a sweet family story. Yeah, I loved that, the line that was about them minding the heavens. Mm -hmm. That was great. It's interesting that you like to explore the, you know, the personal lives of scientists. I love in the second book how there's that interplay between science, chance, and magic. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? 
I think one thing that people explore, uh, you know, something that is in sort of society is what is magic and living. I think it does feel like really like magic is just these accidental moments that happen sometimes. And that is magic. And it's just chance. You're there at the right time when something happens. And that's magic. Like Alexander Fleming discovering penicillin was just this perfect moment when he had left the lab in the right conditions and his Petri dish was dirty. Or just meeting somebody else in life that's magical, that that's a happy accident. I kind of am pulling away from the fairies aspect of magic to more of the game theory of magic. (laughs) Well, I think that's really an important point for students to understand as they dig into science and they look at that as a path, is that sometimes there is chance that you have to take into play. And you might fail, 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 but there will be that one time that something went right And it's just the roll of the dice that it worked. (laughs) Right. And I think part of it is acknowledging, wow, it went right and seizing upon that moment and Mm -hmm. running then. The idea of believing in the possible, just that making yourself open to these chance experiences. If you're a writer and you're, you know, leaving yourself open to discover new aspects of your story or, you know, new thing in life that you can write about. Or if you're a scientist looking for that, what might be possible and pursuing that line, you know, just allowing yourself to be in the right place in the mindset for something possible and unexpected to happen. Yeah. Don't approach it with blinders on expecting these exact results, but being open to seeing the connections. Mm-hmm. And Have a plan, but deviate. <laughs> I love right. that plan. <laughs> You've probably gotten feedback out from different teachers and students. How do students receive this book? So for the 14th Goldfish, the number one question for the kids who haven't read it or who've only like read a couple chapters is, where's the title from? And I say, mm-hmm. go back and read the book. Finish. <laughs> but honestly, the main question is, what happens to Raj and Ellie? So Raj is the heartthrob. I want to get a t-shirt that says Team Raj because I have so many girls come up to me and say that they're in love with Raj. Honestly, originally I wasn't going to write a second book and just barraged by kids asking what's going to happen? Are they going to fall in love? What's happening next? What's happening? Is Melvin coming back? Say, I have no idea. And so that's why I finally wrote the second book was kind of to figure out for the fans what happens. I won't give any spoilers away, but I like the way that that relationship evolved and what became of it. So that's very satisfying. (laughs) It feels realistic, too. Mm -hmm. Will there be a third adventure? So right now, no. (laughs) That's what I mean. Leave yourself open. Yeah. (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) Who knows? You just heard our interview with Jennifer L. Holm, author of The 13th Goldfish, The Third Mushroom, and several other books and graphic novels for young readers. Kristen, I've never had a Petri dish in my refrigerator, but I think that would be a really interesting way to grow up. I mean, I've molded things. Don't get me wrong. I was going to say, I've had science experiments growing in my refrigerator, just not necessarily intentionally. Right. (laughs) But I, I love that science was such an important part of Jenny's life growing up and that all of that history of medicine and those sciences have found their way into such great gripping stories for young readers. What I loved especially about The Third Mushroom was this idea that there are happy accidents in science and in life. There are so many things that just come about by random chance that 
there has to be some kind of magic at work to make those experiences possible. It's also important that we're open to seeing those happy accidents. So what I enjoyed most about the books, especially the first one, was how scientists were described as always observing and always paying attention to details. And I thought that was a really good thing we can talk about with our students is to always be asking questions and always be taking in the details around us and paying attention to those unexpected things we might not always notice. There's so much creativity involved in that act of asking questions, asking the right questions. One of the other great things about this book is the intergenerational relationship between Ellie and Melvin. It's definitely a great book for starting conversations between children and grandparents. So, you know, what were your experiences? What were your jobs? <laughs> what, what were you like as a teenager? So the ideas that carry through in Jennifer's books, believing in the possible, believing in the unexpected, are also things that happen when you're playing games. A good game is full of surprises, has twists and turns that you don't expect. It allows you to do things and accomplish things you never thought were possible, and they're fun. So we visited Filament Games in Madison, Wisconsin, and we got the opportunity to get a tour of their facilities, meet a lot of the people who work on the games, and also play Breaking Boundaries in Science. It was a great experience, and we definitely saw from the way the offices were decorated and even the way the bathrooms had comics and things in them, <laughs> that these were people who loved to have fun while they worked and to keep playing and learning at the center of what they did. It was obvious from talking to our guests and just peeking over the shoulders of the developers that these are serious games that are also seriously fun. Here's our interview with Dan Norton, Chief Creative Officer, and Ethan Psycho, producer of Breaking Boundaries in Science from Filament Games. My name's Dan Norton. I'm the Chief Creative Officer and one of the founding partners of Filament. So Chief Creative Officer, aside from just being a generally cool title, <laughs> means that I oversee the design team and our learning game design documentation strategies. And I also work a lot on sort of new incoming projects to sort of shape them for the studio to make sure that they're successful. And my name's Ethan. I'm a producer here at Filament. I've been here for about two years now. I mostly lead projects. I kind of manage the work workload, the scope, the budget a little bit on projects, basically refining what we need to do and getting it all sorted out so that we can do it well. I was the lead producer on Breaking Boundaries. Mm -hmm. And mid-Breaking Boundaries, our designer parted ways from Filament. So since that time, I've taken on kind of a lot more roles on project than just being the producer. So obviously here at Filament, you guys like to have a lot of fun. Yes. Play seems like when you read the website, plays at the center. So yeah. tell us a little bit about the games you guys create and what you do here at Filament in general. Filament was started, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago, something like that now, around the idea that games are a very powerful tool for not just entertainment, where they normally are considered, but they're also very effective tools in education and learning. The main idea behind that is actually sort of a lot of work and rhetoric from a researcher named James Paul G, who wrote a book way back when called What Video Games Can Teach Us About Learning and Literacy. The main thrust of the book is that when people get engaged in play and or when they're playing 
role-playing games or video games. It's because they have latched onto a problem that they feel is challenging but doable, and sort of the encountering of new difficulties, gaining new abilities, solving problems. All of those things are the things that we normally call in most other environments learning. Generally, I think an easy way to think about it is when you're bored with a video game, you've really just kind of ran out of things to learn. Right? You're like, as far as I can tell, there's no more interesting challenges or new frontiers mm-hmm. for me to solve. I've learned everything I can from this game. So if all games are learning engines, most games just sort of teach you things of zero value, right? You get very good at understanding what type of ammo goes in which gun mm-hmm. or how to <laughs> push these buttons in this order in a certain speed. Yeah, right. So <laughs> Or randomly push these buttons. Yeah, and, and hope something happens. happens. Yeah, yeah, right. So so normally the information that you get from those learning experiences, even though it's optimized with great feedback and scaffolding and rewards and mm-hmm. identity, system structures, even though it's got all those things. What you learn on the other side has no utility outside of that game. Filament's trick that we've mm-hmm. been doing for yeah, 12, 13 years now is can we engineer games or playful experiences where those game mechanics, the things that you do, the challenges you're given, the identities you're granted, can we align those two things that once you finish the game, that the things you got good at are of value? Can they be transferred and used outside of the world? Our sort of mission statement now is playful experiences that have a positive impact on people's lives. That kind of sums it up. That's kind of why Filament exists. It has been a lot of fun. And I think it's interesting that a lot of educational games aren't fun to play. Yeah. And that was always, was either you had to have a game that was educational or you had to have a game that was fun. Mm -hmm. You couldn't do both or no one did it well. Mm -hmm. But that's the feedback I've heard from a lot of teachers that use your games is they are a good video game. You also (laughs) learn useful things through. (laughs) I think a lot of the time, a lot of educational game products sort of treat the game as the candy coating or the bribe. And then Mm -hmm. they take the instructional content and deliver it in exactly the same format as it's always been. And so that has some benefits, right? For a teacher who hasn't really had much experience with learning games that can now see learning content as they're used to seeing it so it can make them comfortable. But what really sort of happens is that when you sit down and play a game that has conventional instructional material with some type of game lashed down to as a bribe, two things happen. The first is usually those secondary game mechanics suck. No one wants to play any kind of game if it has quiz questions jammed in the middle of it, right? So the game (laughs) suffers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Two, the player is made very aware that the entire, everyone from the designer to the developer to the teacher delivering it has treated the learning material like it is bad, like that it needs an excuse, that Mm -hmm. it needs to be a bribe to make you learn something, and that it undermines the value of the content at like a fundamental level. It it sort of is a tipping a hat to the user that no one values this information. So it really kind of goes backwards in what games are supposed to do. Games are supposed to be empowering and supposed to give you tactical feedback and context to understand why things matter. And so when you build a game in that way, where the game is sort of their briber and excuse for the content, you kind of just shot yourself in the face in terms of why you would do it in the first place. We sometimes call it the chocolate-covered broccoli approach yeah. because, <laughs> yeah. because it sounds gross. So, yeah, yeah. I don't want any of that. Right? Yeah. yeah. 
but broccoli's good on its own. Right? Just that's, steam it. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's <laughs> give me broccoli, then give me chocolate. Yeah. And I will be happy. That's the way to do it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's basically the idea is that if you put the chocolate on the broccoli, you've ruined both. Mm-hmm. We try and steam our broccoli here. Yeah. yeah we are broccoli steamers. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We're all about steam. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Nice. Oh, here we go. <laughs> I also like broccoli. Yeah. You know, yeah. And chocolate. So yep. yeah. All of that. Yep. There you yeah. go. Good. It mm-hmm. works for us. <laughs> Is it close to lunchtime? <laughs> no, I think that's interesting that, you know, some people gamify things because that implies that this is so boring and terrible that we've got to do something. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're going to force feed this to you one way or another. Mm-hmm. Maybe this will help that go down. I think I'm a kind of like, if someone were to give you $20 to eat a piece of cake every day, right? And you're like, here's your $20, here's your cake. I think two weeks in, you're gonna like be like, oh, it's time to eat cake again. <laughs> and then one day, when they're like, here's the cake, but you don't get 20 bucks, you're gonna like throw the cake away. Mm-hmm. You're gonna be like, yeah. how dare you? <laughs> yeah. Right? Like the addition of an extrinsic reward can undermine the intrinsic, even if you had it, mm-hmm. even if you like cake. The fact that someone's like, I need to pay you to eat it makes you feel like, oh, I should be paid to eat this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So the newest experience you have is a VR experience, Breaking Boundaries in Science. Mm-hmm. We just had an opportunity to play it. It's amazing. Very cool. Oh, pshaw. <laughs> it was cool. Um, so tell us a little bit about this project, where this came from. So we were approached by Oculus. Oculus was looking for some new projects to help sort of flesh out their content portfolio across all of the things. So mm. the state of VR right now is in a weird kind of lurch in which the high-end devices are logistically very hard for people to implement into their lives. Right. The low-end VR has very limited interaction. The majority of the industry right now is sort of focusing on these intermediate devices with some interaction and yeah, sort of trying to bring the Google Cardboard people forward through right. products. Mm-hmm. And one of the fronts that Oculus wanted to start beefing up content to sort of get people more comfortable with VR as a platform that is worth getting into was education. But I know we started jamming on the idea that we could make uh, stories to tell about different famous women in science. We tried to do very different disciplines and different periods of time. Yeah, ultimately that shook out to be what Breaking Boundary is now. The game is about three women scientists, Grace Hopper, Mary Curry, and Jane Goodall. And the way that the player learns about them and it gets to know what their breakthroughs were, what their life was like, is through an environment that sort of acts as a diorama, similar to the way a, a museum has a diorama of a place that it's modeled after the existing environments of their workspaces that they had at some of the peak of their discoveries. And riddled throughout that environment are objects that are significant, just materials that they had in their life or came across in their life. So, for instance, in Grace Hopper's environment, if you open the drawer in her desk, there's an alarm clock that's disassembled. And that's because when she was a young girl, she would disassemble an alarm clock to learn how it worked. And that was kind of the main point of using those objects is, you know, we all have objects that we use in our lives. I've got my favorite pair of pants. I've got, you know, my guitar at home. I've got my drum set. These things that are important to you. Are these those pants? These are those pants. Oh, okay. <laughs> nice pants. Yeah. We got favorite pair of <laughs> pants today. Yeah, I feel yeah, good yeah, about yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> but they're things that kind of define you. Like, you identify with the things, the tools that you use to go through your life, and those things you use to not only shape your environment, but they also have an impact on you. And the trick with that was that we never knew what order the player was going 
going to find these objects. Mm-hmm. And weaving a narrative amongst all of these, we knew we couldn't have an arc necessarily. You couldn't really craft a narrative of a person's story in a way that was, you know, there was a building, there was a peak, and then there was the after. There wasn't really any of that that we had control over. But the objects themselves were sort of grouped in that way, in that certain objects told the story of the scientists' early life, so before they were famous, before they made their major discoveries. And then some of the objects had to do with that time in their life when they were really in it. They were making those discoveries, really working on it. And then some of the objects related more toward how their legacy played out. What was the impact of their work that went into the future? And so those three sort of themes helped us refine what objects we chose to use for each scientist and a bit about how they were placed in the scene, because you can assume a little bit about how a player is going to navigate the way that a player navigates in the game is by these little transport nodes. Mm -hmm. And you can zip over to an area, look around and find the objects in that area, zip over to another area. And we knew where the player was going to start. And we could make some assumptions that the player is probably going to look in this area. So let's put things there that are key objects and that will send them on their path into discovering all the other ones. Mm-hmm. So an unstructured choose-your-own-adventure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's interesting because like, we don't want to be historically inaccurate, right? We mm-hmm. don't want to like impart untruths about their lives. But at the same time, we're trying to create one room that can tell the entire story. So... Mm-hmm. You know, of course, Grace Hopper yeah. did not keep her disassembled alarm clock with her at <laughs> yeah. all times. Yep. Right. So we're trying to make it sort of a blend of like, here's some historically accurate, you know, went through a lot of reference photos mm-hmm. for everything we could and tried to make everything as accurate as we could. But at the same time, we're sort of making a blended story of, of each scientist's life. And yeah, it's, it's kind of tricky, right? It's interesting. Mm-hmm. We're trying to tell a particular truth, which means we have to tell some particular lies. Yeah. I mm-hmm. think the most meaningful juncture, and I think this is where you, you can probably speak better to it, is yeah. the the introduction of Jane Goodall Institute and Jane yeah. Goodall into the project. Jane Goodall's institute came on about a third of the way through, and we've been working with them getting time for Jane Goodall herself to contribute voiceover, but also the various images that they had and video that they'd been putting together, both just in their own archives, but also for the Jane documentary. It seems like it'd be nerve-wracking knowing that Jane Goodall is actually looking at oh, yeah. critiquing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so that was a, an interesting task I had for myself at one point that we had a bunch of interview questions that we were going to be giving to Jane so that she could kind of riff on these questions and answer them however she wanted. And that's how we would take that voiceover and and implement it into the game. And thinking through those questions and how to word them in such a way that we could get the objects that are relevant that we're referring to in the game, how we could have her speak about them in a, you know, her own way. It was, (laughs) there was a lot of nuance to Mm -hmm. the way that those questions needed to be worded. It was like a triple threat of tensions, right? Because one, you're setting up an interview with someone who is living history, mm-hmm. right? Two, someone who is a absolute pinnacle of her field of research, yeah. right? So someone who knows a whole lot about <laughs> the thing you're asking questions about. Right. So, you can't sound yeah. stupid in those questions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then third, it's all architected around our efforts to create basically interactive dioramas about 
literally her life. Mm-hmm. So we're like, here's a room that you used to be in. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, you know, just the level of all the different ways that you could go wrong or mm-hmm. sort of in front of you. Right there. Uh, it was nerve wracking. Uh, mm-hmm. They were really generous. So they gave us, I think, you know, positive, constructive feedback and we mm-hmm. were able to correct some things. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I think that, yeah, it was really, it was really cool. So you started with something like monkeys, huh? Yeah. What's, that yeah. About? What's that about? Yeah. Apes, no chimps, no. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Can you teach a chimpanzee to drive, Jane? Yes or no? <laughs> That's what we need to know. These yeah. are the burning questions. Do they like Everyone's wearing suits? Yes. <laughs> I've brought several different pictures of suits. <laughs> I thought I would just bounce them off you. Yeah. See so. which ones you think would be chimp ready. <laughs> I think it's fascinating because so many times these women are a blip in a history book. You know, in school, you might have yeah, just a page. heard them mentioned, mm-hmm. a caption on a picture. You didn't mm-hmm. really know who they were. So yeah. this is an interesting way to really get to know what were the challenges they faced yeah. and mm-hmm. why were they so groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Grace Hopper out of these three in particular is sort of ridiculous that she isn't as famous yeah. as any other scientist full stop, right? Mm-hmm. Like her contributions to computer science, her career. I mean, she's just amazing. Yeah. And it's, for most people, it's like, Grace who? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Mary Curry is a name that's known. Right, well known. Mm-hmm. And Jane Goodall, obviously, is pretty well known. And, you know, they're known for, you know, they've also had amazing contributions to science. So it's great to celebrate them. But yeah, hopefully someday we get to go back in and pull some more of the names that really need to be yeah. pulled into the spotlight. I'm glad that out of our first trio that Grace Hopper is in there to like really acknowledge her contributions to well, you know, I don't think our little box here that's receiving our audio signals <laughs> yeah. would be able to do its job if right. it wasn't for Grace Hopper. That's so, right. right. Just massive contribution. And there's a lot of picture books coming out about Grace Hopper actually, so I think that's changing that uh-huh. you know, kids 10 years from now will be like how do you not know who Grace Hopper is? Oh, good. I've, I've had this <laughs> yeah, picture book good. since I was five. Right. So. It, it may be just a matter of the times being that mm-hmm. computers and computer science is coming about a bit more today mm-hmm. uh, than it was in the 90s and early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the idea of that nonlinear storytelling, though, mm-hmm. and of building the idea of who this person was through objects, because I'm a writer, and you know we tell writers that all the time. Well, don't tell us who the person is. Tell us what's in their room yeah, to right. tell what they're like. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. In High Fidelity, they say, we realize that it was not what you're like, it's what you like that's mm-hmm. important. Uh-huh. And so it's, it's kind of those uh-huh. things, like, what would she keep close to her? What would she have in her life? lab. So mm-hmm. I think that's a really cool way to do it. So what are the big takeaways you hope that as students play these experiences? What do you want them to take away? One of the things that I would like students to take away is that these women were not anything incredibly special. They were real people, just like that student. You know, you as a student, you're reading about people in these history books, and they seem like these such far-off, distant creatures that are totally untouchable, and they must have had all of these opportunities to get where they are. I don't have any of those opportunities. Or, you know, they must have been working in this incredibly high-tech lab to do these kinds of experiments. And then you look at Mary Curry's shed, and, oh, well, (laughs) that kind of looks like my garage, you know? Not only that, but her experiments were, is it this one? Nope. Yeah. Is it this one? Nope. Nope. You know, like the the diligence and just the, mm-hmm. just the hard work angle, especially for her, was a, a big learning point for me. Yeah, so just taking away that you don't have to have all of the resources to be able to make something special. You can make something special because of your effort, you know, because you believe in it. And I think that's kind of one of the things that is 
a common thread among these scientists is they were all so focused and so into their craft, into that particular area of science that they were exploring. And you listen to Grace Hopper talk too, and she's just such a high energy person. She just had such a resolve. And you can tell that with the output, she did so much work well into later in her life that she just had so much energy. That was kind of inspiring. I love the details that make the environments real, Mm -hmm. because that's one of the things, especially in older games when you're exploring places, it'd be a guy walking into the room, hmm, what's over here? Oh, sure, yeah. Look at that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Should I pick up this box? But, you know, you really... <laughs> the one box in the room. That, <laughs> yeah. The, the only thing that you can... Yeah. Everything else. Right. Yeah. So there was so much to explore. But then there were details, like in Jane Goodall's tent. I was just staring at the floor and looking at the, <laughs> the bugs, bugs, you yeah. know, and all the bugs mm-hmm. circling the lamp. And then when I was in the laboratory, in the shed, yeah. I, I noticed, I was like, oh, it's raining outside. And then mm-hmm. I saw, you know, water dripping in through mm-hmm. the, the ceiling. And I was yeah. like, oh, well, that makes it amazing. Yeah, mm-hmm. all three, what we have a shed a tent and a basement. Mm-hmm. Right? We, all these are not particularly glamorous places right. where, you know, world-changing science happened. Yeah, and I think that's a cool piece. Prior to Breaking Boundaries, I think Filament was a, a bigger snob about what we would originally call sort of look-and-learn experiences. Hmm. It's a thing we would say with yep. a derisive snort afterwards. Yeah, <laughs> look-and-learn. Yeah, look-and-learn. I'll explain our thinking on that as right. a shop, as originally, mm-hmm. right? So Filament spends a bunch of time when we make games, not in VR, around custom interactions. Like, what are the things that you do is generally how we define and integrate learning objectives. So when you're working on VR devices that don't have, you know, even talking about the current high-end ones, right, you still have a limited amount of sensory input, right? You can only walk so far, and you can only have so many body parts tracked, and if you can use your hands, it's kind of like you're using mittens Mm -hmm. uh, while holding two sticks, right? (laughs) So all of a sudden, there's all these constraints on what is possible to do and interact in the space. And it was hard for us to first grapple with the realities of the limits on what are the interactions you can do, especially on more modest VR devices. But then, too, it took us a while to really unearth that a lot of the impacts in VR are really about a sense of presence, a sense of place, a sense of scale, and a sense of exploration. That is a different map than the one that you apply to how to think about learning games. And on this project and other projects, we've really, I think, surprised ourselves with the level of engagement and wonder you get. Uh, Just being able to hop into a place you've never been and interact with that space really just sort of in an investigatory way. Mm -hmm. It feels great, and it, it feels still really impactful. So... It's a big lesson learned for us as a studio. We've definitely had to recalibrate to understand the value of VR up and down the spectrum of interaction. One of the authors and illustrators that we've talked to, Tom Lichtenheld, he talks about constraint in mm. art and how those constraints actually limiting yourselves mm, can mm-hmm. make you oh, yeah. more creative and lead to new discoveries that you never would have thought of if you could just do anything. Right. Yep, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk a bit about the development team, because you hear so many kids nowadays like, I want to be a video game designer. (laughs) And then some are like, but I don't know how to code. So what does a team look like when you're designing these games? So when we started, we had Matt, the designer, Matt Hazelton, and then also the rest of the team was we had a visual interaction designer, UX designer. We had a programmer, an engineer, and we had a 3D artist. And we actually broke up the first two games into sort of two separate teams. You didn't mention the producer. Oh. A, there was a producer. <laughs> and there's a producer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the most <That's> true. important. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And we actually broke up 
up the first two games into two separate teams so we could sort of work on them in tandem. And they each had their own UX sort of technical art person. And then they also had each their own engineer. And I also forgot to mention a 2D artist was also on this for texturing objects. So we had a 3D artist that would make the objects in 3D and then a 2D artist that would give them a texture wrap. I'd like to answer that question a little more like broadly just Uh. for someone being like, what does it take? Right. To what does it take? Get it, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of different disciplines, like Ethan mentioned, that go into making a game. There's artists, there's designers, there's graphic designers, there's programmers, there's sound engineers, there's yep. producers. They all have very different skills. So the good news is that there's a lot of different ways to participate and get into making games. The bad news is, is that all of those skills are actually very complicated and require a passion for doing those things. Mm -hmm. A passion for playing games does not actually translate into (laughs) the ability or skill of making them. They're very different activities. So if you're very passionate about games and you want to get involved in the games industry, it's still really important to find out what part of making games are you also passionate about. Because the making of the game is what you will spend all of your hours doing. Right. And the playing of the game you make, that happens at the end. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So I I always find that's like the biggest piece of cognitive dissonance I find for people coming into the games industry. They're like, I love games. Mm -hmm. So I don't have any experience making them or really have any interest in any particular skill that goes into making them. But I'm hoping that my you know 500 hours of world of warcraft are gonna make me hireable right and the answer is no that's the first line on the resume (laughs) it it happens in cover letters it really does happen yeah 90 yeah yeah people (laughs) people will be like i play games really hard and it's like that is okay (laughs) cool yeah neat lots of people here play games really hard too but you actually have to be someone who's like i'm actually really passionate about making games and then once you're inside that umbrella like and what part of making games is the thing you're passionate about. That's sort of your way into the industry. Speaking of ways into the industry, so we are always fascinated about origin stories here and how people got to be where they are. So what are your origin stories? How did you get to be where you're sitting here right now? My main trajectory is uh, I went to school but did not actually graduate, important caveat, for art and design degrees. And my goal for school was I wanted to get into digital and interactive art. None of the programs I was in were particularly ready to do that because I'm also a really old man. (laughs) And back then, that was digital art was still sort of working its way into curriculum. They were not sure. Still new. Yeah. I actually, I went to a lovely school here in Wisconsin, Stevens Point for a year, but the year I got there, they had just cut their computer Mm. graphics program because they didn't really see that computer art thing going anywhere. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, See no future for that. Yeah. (laughs) Wonderful school. I feel bad almost calling them out. They're great on cave paintings, though. Yeah, Yeah, right? Best program. Yeah. Well, one of my professors there, actually, she specialized in landscape. She would, like, literally, you know, get that travel easel, go to Europe, mm-hmm. sit down on a hill and paint. Yeah. She was mm-hmm. amazing. Amazing artist. But yeah, as a the, there really wasn't a lot of great programs that I was able to pop into that really were giving me the skills I wanted. So at a certain juncture, I, my girlfriend at the time found a link to a online learning research center here in town that was looking for an interactive designer. And I had already been futzing around with different programs and had my own sort of self-cobbled together portfolio of things from either classes or just my own stuff. Applied to that on her 
I don't want to say nagging. She told me to do it. <laughs> Motivation. She was generally right about things, and so I did it. And I wound up getting that gig. At that gig, I met the other two founding partners of Filament, but I also met the researchers at UW-Madison who were studying games and learning. I'd always been very passionate about playing games. I had never considered making them, mostly because the games industry is notoriously awful for brutal hours, worked, layoffs, mm-hmm. unrealistic expectations for developers. So I was always like, I'm never going to make games. That just sounds terrible. Yeah. I'll just keep playing them. But while working at that research center and getting exposed to all this really cool research and rhetoric about what great learning games could be, there's sort of this opportunity to blend my ironic passion for learning since I never did finish a degree, but I always have been very passionate about learning with a lot of just accrued skill and knowledge about games and my design sensibilities. After some sort of shuffling around with the other two partners, we started up Filament, the idea that we could start making games that could embody the contemporary research about games and learning of the time. And fast forward, now we're here. Yeah, yeah. That had to be really exciting to be in Madison at the time when all that research is happening here? Because was G here at the time? Yes, he was. Squire? Yes. And Constance Steincooler. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what a powerhouse of research that was that is yep. still coming out of Madison around. Yep. You know, yeah. Kurt, and- Kurt Squire was actually, uh, so I'd had, we'd had a meeting with a client at the research center I worked at, and they wanted to do a forestry project. And I was trying to explain that it would be really cool to have like a sim where you could kind of wreck the forest ecology to learn how it worked. Mm-hmm. And the client was like, this is horrible. <laughs> no, this is no. horrible. That's backwards. We I was like, want. darn it. And then uh, the next day is when I actually met Kurt Squire. I went to a talk that he held about how subversion and deconstruction are really strong elements elements in systems-based learning. I was like, oh, if only, if only <laughs> I'd heard there. this talk. Yeah. number. Yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> so I went and introduced myself afterwards. I was like, that was amazing, but a day late. <laughs> My name's Dan Norton. And, yeah, and he became a good friend and, and a mentor after that. So it was exciting times. It was such a focal point of all of the rock stars in one school. And they've since scattered. Mm-hmm. But it was a really a nice moment in time. And it was cool to be able to make a shop that could try and harness that power to, to like actually bring that research to life. How yeah. about you, Ethan? Yeah, how about you, Ethan? Yeah. Not, not nearly as related to the, the mission of filament, uh, <laughs> necessarily, I guess. I grew up in Montana, in the middle of nowhere, on a farm, and my mom's an elementary school teacher, and growing up, I just lived at the school. I would stay there after school and play on the playground, and it was just kind of my second home. And so lots and lots of books, lots and lots of just teaching woven into life in every moment. Education, to me, has always been just the most important thing. Like, we're on Earth just to fart around, as uh, Kurt Vonnegut, I think, said. But we're also (laughs) here to try to, like, absorb information while that happens, you know. In high school in Fairview, I didn't really have any particular strong passion toward something. I had a knack for music. I'm a percussionist, and that passion for it led me to traveling a long distance to take lessons. And just percussion and playing music in general was one of the things that really set me down a path of, like, oh, learning is fun. And learning can be something that you do not only in your brain, but with your body. Physical engagement and doing things to learn is, to me, more important than reading things to learn or just absorbing information that way. And so that's always just kind of been the way that I take in information. And I went to school at Montana State University for music technology and then went on to graduate school at the University of Calgary in 
Canada to get a master's in sonic art. So always a focus on... <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, <laughs> I just imagined all these students drawing Sonic the Hedgehog yeah. diligently. <laughs> variations. Yeah. Yeah. Variations on the theme. Yeah. <laughs> Song popped into my head. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but always a focus on computer science, somewhat uh, technology and music. But for me, uh, just learning through doing and learning through physicality, I guess, being a percussionist, that was something that always just happened naturally, is in order to learn 30 pages of music, I can't just do that by reading it. Right. Mm. That is impossible. Mm. I cannot just look at these notes. Some, you know, crazy musicians are able to just hear it in their head and memorize it. But even if you do that, your lips don't know how to play it if you're yeah. playing a trumpet. Your yeah. fingers don't know where those notes are on a violin if you don't actually do it. So that process of playing music and being a musician, I think, was one of the biggest things that made that aspect of learning to me really clear is like, you have to do things in order to learn. And when I finished graduate school, my partner had gotten a job in Madison. And so I just thought, all right, let's see what's going on in Madison. Mm. And the first day that Filament had put up a posting for the assistant producer at the time. I climbed the 10 flights of stairs here and brought my CV and resume because I just, when I first saw that posting, it's like, this is what I have to do. This is the place. I had been listening to the podcast a little bit prior to that and listening to you talk with Brandon about various learning game concepts, and it just hit me. It resonated. Well, shucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And fortunately, the opening opened at the right time, and I was right there waiting at the door to give you my resume, and it worked out, and it's been magical since. Well, we started to talk about this, and then I think we veered off a little bit, but going back to the idea of all of the different people who are involved in games. Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. So you were talking about the engineers and the technical people, but you yeah. also have this awesome sound room. You have yeah. voiceover actors. You have people who create stories. So do you mm -hmm. want to talk Go about that? Go through the list? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do a little rundown. <laughs> yeah. little. Okay. If I were to be working in the game industry, what could I do? Okay. Yeah. So I can go through the list. One caveat is that just about every studio slices their responsibilities a little differently. So yeah. when I give you the filament list of team members, it's not necessarily universal. And I'll try and start with some of the more exotic filament ones. So yeah. <laughs> I think one of the first ones is designers. So at filament, we have designers. Their job is to be the client liaison on projects, do the initial design documentation, creative problem solving, and then to work with the team and clients together to collaboratively solve problems as they go through the project. That's a little bit unique because uh, so filament makes weird games, right? So we always have pretty thorny creative problems on many of our projects of like, how's a game going to be able to teach this thing? And having someone who's really in charge of creative problem solving and is also very skilled at client communication is something we found really important. Lots of commercial game studios may not, maybe don't even have a dedicated game designer. It'll be a combination of the developers and programmers, or maybe the lead programmer will get that title. But it's usually someone either collaboratively or through seniority kind of gets that position, but they're usually also still making, directly making, whereas mm -hmm. our designers are either providing documentation or storyboards, or sometimes they're writing content, mm -hmm. uh, but for the most part, they're not necessarily even in the code base on a project. The next is programmers. So programmers are in on the project. Mm -hmm. right? and that one's pretty easy. And, and almost every game shop has programmers who program. Filament does a lot of small team stuff, so often we'll have a programmer on a project. For most studios, that's multiple programmers, and sometimes, you know, depending on the scope of the project, tens, yeah. tens or even 
sometimes hundreds of programmers mm-hmm. can be involved on a on one super blockbuster Assassin's Creed type thing. But here at Filament, you usually have sort of one programmer who is the lead developer and occasionally another developer brought on or maybe mm-hmm. even a few more as contractors on the outside of it. The next and another interesting one for Filament, we call it the UX position. So they're in charge of interface design, interaction design, so like figuring out how the user uses things on the screen and how they work. And they're also often a technical artist, so they will bring in the 3D or 2D assets from our dedicated artists and get them functioning inside the game. Lots of studios break that job into two, three, four different people. So we look for very special unicorn people to fill Mm -hmm. that role because they have to have technical skills, communication skills, really good design sensibilities, and taste. So it's a tall order for a position, but it lets us solve problems very quickly when we can find someone who can bring all of those things to bear at once in their head. So it's good. Let's see. So uh, I just mentioned them. So illustrators. Filament has a group of illustrators who provide mostly 2D assets. So we do a lot of games that are 2D, but even our 3D games, uh, like Breaking Boundaries, the the textures that cover things must be created, and that's done by our artists. And they usually work on tablets, like big, you know, Cintiq-like drawable tablets, and they just make art all day. I'll go into a little bit more detail because a lot of people ask us specifically, how do you get into making art for games? Normally, my advice for that is that your competition to become an artist for a game is literally people who draw all day, every day. That's sort of the standard for if you're an employed game artist, that's what you just do for your job. Uh, If you're an unemployed game artist, it's still it's just expected that you're the kind of person that has a sketchbook on your person at all time. Like our illustration team for quite some time, I think not just right now, but we used to have a club where after a day of drawing, they would all hang out and draw. And they even like for a while, they were attending some life study courses at nights just because they're people who are passionate about drawing. And so that's usually the bar. Do you find with the illustrators that some might have different specialties, like this one's really good at line work, while this one's detail and shading, or mm-hmm. usually it's you're an all-around, multi-purpose artist? Yeah, at Filament, we kind of have both. We have, mm-hmm. I think all of our artists have specialties, and then some of them excel even more at being very flexible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it varies. So you can kind of approach that either way. I would say if you're going to hyper-specialize and be like, well, I just draw wolf people, unless you find like wolf people studios your portfolio is going to suffer for it Mm -hmm. so being able to tackle a bunch of different styles and like levels like so film really likes to do whimsical stuff right so we always look for that in our portfolios but we have some stuff that has to be like serious corporate training stuff or breaking boundaries it's a warm space right Mm -hmm. We, we have a lot of nice warm colors and stuff but it's not necessarily wacky. Right. right? Yeah. So it, its range for audience can skew up to high school level or above, mm-hmm. you know, without feeling too childish. We definitely thought about that in the aesthetic of how we built those 3D objects is we want kids to be able to not be scared by Mary Curry's mm-hmm. shop. You know, mm-hmm. it should still feel warm. I think the next is producers. So in some ways, they share some of the responsibilities of designers in terms of client communication and managing expectations for client and teams. They're more focused on making sure the project is overall on track, making sure that promises made are promises kept, and making sure that the team doesn't sort of veer off into making something that's impossible to fit into a timeline. Mm-hmm. When our designers are doing a great job, they're shouldering production skills. And as Ethan's a perfect testimony, 
producers are doing a great job. They're also naturally absorbing some design responsibilities because they're both supposed to be on the spot, creative collaborators and problem mm-hmm. solvers. They just have sort of slightly different toolkits. Right. Some of our projects, like if we sort of identify like, oh, we know exactly what we're going to make. Mm-hmm. We may not put a designer on it. Mm-hmm. And then some projects may be like, oh, this is purely a discovery project to sort of explore design. We may not put a producer on it. So, you know, depending on the project, we sort of decide which risks are there. Most projects have a combination of both. Am I missing anybody in terms um, of like... Yeah, let's see. What about music? Yeah. Oh, yeah, we got a guy. Yes, <laughs> right here. Yeah. <laughs> the, the music and the story. Yeah. How did those two come about? <laughs> yeah, we've got Ethan and Josh. And Josh is our sort of dedicated sound cylinder for the entire studio. So he does Foley or sound creation stuff. He also does music composition. Uh, and he's also in charge of just combing our libraries often and, and getting the stuff. And then mm-hmm. Ethan is, uh, as you've already heard, does a bunch of sound badassery too Mm -hmm. so (laughs) once you know it's everything from helping josh coordinate across projects to also just like getting in there and getting sound done with only one sound engineer for the whole studio sometimes when multiple projects are on the go and they all have deliveries some things can bubble over to me but yeah there's definitely some josh magic that is just (laughs) yeah uncomparable yep josh can make a song in any style yeah at any length Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. Masterful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's a great composer. Uh, QA. Oh, I've been. Oh, I've been. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so our QA team, they are in charge of making sure that the team is doing a good job identifying what quality means on a mm-hmm. project. So that's the first way they assure quality. And then, two, they are going through the game, looking at the features that are expected to be built at each iteration of the game, and providing clarification and kickback for when those things aren't cutting the mustard. When people think QA often, they just think, oh, that's someone who plays the game all day. But, mm-hmm. you know, that the actual playing of the game is a very small part of QA's real tactical right. skill set. Like, really, a lot of it is understanding, defining, and working with the team to define quality, and then moving forward to make sure that happens. So that's cool. There's account managers, which yeah. I am on this project, You're for example. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we also have someone on the management team who is sort of rides shotgun on a project to make sure if, if something catches fire, they're there to be like, hey, I can help fix that. Yep. I'll yeah. that out for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> How do yeah. you write and research your games then? I know that it seemed mm. like you had a lot of research that yep. you needed to do for this mm-hmm. game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would mostly fall under the designer's role mm-hmm. yep. of that initial discovery of subject matter. And a lot of times the games that we make, we're working with a client, they have particular research that they're doing and they bring that research to us and then we work with them into incorporating that into the design. Yeah, so a lot of the time our clients come with subject matter expertise because the reason they're making a game in the first place is they're passionate and know something about it usually. So then the designers usually often sort of get conscripted as being the resident expert on that thing through exposure. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they know less about those things and we sort of have to take the lead on that subject matter expertise and that's often fine. Like usually the only time it goes wrong is if the client insists they're a subject matter expert but then they aren't. Yeah, mm-hmm. That doesn't happen yeah. that often though. <laughs> yeah. You know, so... In terms of writing, yeah, too, normally that's the designer's responsibility. Often clients will work with us on content creation, though. Like, mm-hmm. I think one thing that Filament doesn't do a lot of narratively driven games. So we don't have like a dedicated narrative writer, for example. Most of our games are interaction and systems driven. So there is writing to be done, but we don't design them or really think about them in terms of like, oh, this game is a story that unfolds. Like, we think about progression 
like Ethan was sort of talking about like mm -hmm. how do we anticipate a user moves through the experience and then create the scaffolding to make that work the way we do but we don't do that by like first writing two or three page narrative mm -hmm. of Sally puts on the headset yeah and <laughs> she sees a drawer <laughs> yeah, so I like to think of it so like when you play Tetris Right. You, you, no one wrote, you know, one day there was this giant pit and shapes <laughs> fell into it. Right mm -hmm. there. I mean, we probably can find some really embarrassing narrative for Tetris somewhere out right. there. But <laughs> so there is no real narrative designed for that game. It is a, it is a, it's a set of experiences that unfold. But for a player, once it, when a player consumes it, they construct a narrative. Right. They can be like, oh, I got to level 16. It was getting really hectic. And then I got you know, three L's in a row, and it was mm -hmm. awful. All I wanted was the red stick. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I couldn't get the red stick, so I lost, right? So so you uh, players construct the narrative in through play, and that's true even for games that are driven by narrative. Mm -hmm. Like if you play an adventure game or like a, a Walking Dead Telltale game, your narrative matches the narrative largely constructed by the designers. Mm -hmm. um, but it's still a narrative you feel like you are building. Right. And to the extent where you don't feel like you're an agent in building that narrative because the story is bad or the story takes away decisions that you would think are important, it makes the game worse. So. So from the learning aspect of it, then, is the designer kind of the one who's keeping the learning goals in mind mm -hmm. and making mm -hmm. sure that it's meeting learning objectives? Because you, you've got that whole other layer on top of it than right. just designing a, a good game to play. Mm -hmm. You're also reaching those learning targets. Yeah, and then we try and we try and get to that like right out of the gate. Like mm -hmm. Step one for us is almost always identify your objectives. Like, yeah. So what is it you want? What is the impact you want for the player? What type of transformation or learning objective or standard? Step two is actually, do you intend to assess it and how do you intend to assess it, right? So it's usually a time to argue for high-quality assessment, mm -hmm. right? If, if the outcome of the game is they're going to take a poorly formed multiple-choice quiz, we need to get that mm -hmm. out in front and talk about whether or not they really want to make a multiple-choice game, right? Because mm -hmm. if we were actually trying to talk about success on impact, we need to talk about high-quality standards so that success isn't crappy. So once those have been isolated, then we start documenting, like, what do we intend the game mechanics to be that embody those objectives? And looking at the objectives and sort of migrating them through three sort of paths of play. The first most obvious one is uh, verbs, right? So in games, you do things and you get better at doing things. And so if any of our learning objectives or impact objectives are structured around being able to do a thing, ask, well, can we make a digital incarnation of doing that thing? And if so... We can probably create rewards, scaffold, feedback, and empowerment around doing that thing a lot. That usually becomes sort of the core of the game. The second is identity. Games are really good at putting you in the role of someone or something else. They're pretty unique in that, that they give you a different first-person persona. Like you can read books and comics and you can gain empathy for other characters and understand their perspectives as others, but games are really unique in that they ask you to become someone you're not. And games are really powerful in that people generally just agree, right? You know, you can, in fact, people are interested in exploring novel and weird identities, right? So, like, mm -hmm. somebody like, what if you're like an 
octopus pretending to be a father of a family. <laughs> we're like, yes, okay, yes. Or you are a piece of bread trying to navigate right. an environment. Yeah, yes. <laughs> right? Let's do Go. That. Yeah. So for our learning objectives, are about understanding the world from a particular point of view or seeing uh, the world through a different set of eyes, then we can embed that identity as the player's identity and have that be very effective. And the last one is systems. So games are made out of rules, and to get good at games, usually you wind up inhabiting and understanding those rules in a pretty complicated way. That aforementioned Tetris player will, you know, if they really got that far in, they'll probably understand more about the progression of how pieces show up, etc. They may have gone online and done some research, <laughs> right? So Did their own data. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so if the learning objectives are about how something like an ecology or a dynamic system of any sort exists and how it works as a thing in motion, you can make those rules that govern that thing as, as the game's rules and ask a player to inhabit them, and then they'll come out with a really dynamic, multifaceted understanding of how that system works. So those are the, the big three for like how do we migrate impact objectives into play. They work all right. <laughs> yeah. What's something that you yourselves have learned in making the newest game? Besides about these three scientists? Um, about or? the scientists or about the process of game making or about or learning? About yourself. Anything. Yeah. <laughs> anything. <laughs> Boy. Okay. Uh, Let me stew on that while you... I got one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I mentioned a little bit earlier about Mary Curry's work itself was brutal. Uh, she was just distilling the sludge to attempt to find radioactive compounds. And <laughs> it was an endless, brutal, toxic slog to pursue her goal of this discovery. It was not a fancy science about just drawing an equation on the board and understanding some new facet of how the world works. It was her believing that scientific evidence pointed to this thing should exist and that she could find it. And it was just a relentless pursuit, ultimately cost her her life. I think it's important to acknowledge that science is not just a realm of working smart and being the most brilliant person in the room, but a lot of science is about diligence, follow through, and hard work. And those are really, really important parts of what make real STEM careers go. I think one of the ones that I'm, I'm dealing with right now, so it's probably front of mind the most, is Jane Goodall's environment and what I've learned about her current work with a program called Roots and Shoots which is part of Jane Goodall's institute. And the mission of that program is to work with youth all over the, the world and set them up with different projects that focus on environmental sustainability. And when Jane was doing her research in the Gombe Reserve in, in Tanzania, she would make you know, trips back and forth quite a bit. And over time, it was pretty clear that there was deforestation problems that were happening. And it wasn't that there was, you know, some mad corporation that was just taking over. It was that there were lots of people and there were resources that they had that they needed to use. What Jane and, and her institute saw is that this habitat for the chimpanzees was being reduced substantially because the human population there was encroaching on it, but it wasn't that the people were doing, you know, anything bad necessarily. They were doing what they needed to do to survive. And so that message that, that Jane carries is of really in order 
to solve this environmental sustainability problem that we have, we have to address poverty and resource needs among people first. Uh, that is really the crux of our, in, our, our environmental issues. That was when she began assembling all the Infinity Stones. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Infinity Stones. Uh, yeah. I don't so. want to turn to dust at the end <laughs> yeah. of this yeah. interview. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler. Kristen. Yeah. yeah. If there were just half as many people, we wouldn't have this problem. So, <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. That's all I got. That's all I got. This has been fantastic, guys. Thank you so much. Yeah. 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 Thanks, guys. Thank you very yeah. much. You just heard our interview with experts from Filament Games. That was Dan Norton, Chief Creative Officer, and Ethan Psycho, producer of Breaking Boundaries in Science. Breaking Boundaries in Science was made through a partnership with Oculus and is available for free for the Samsung Gear VR system. They were both a blast to talk to, and we probably could have spent an entire afternoon talking about learning and games and what we wanted to be when we grew up. Yeah, we were definitely (laughs) geeking out on the same wavelength with those guys. That was a lot of fun. I loved that they focused on engagement and also wonder, that they kept wonder at the center of their games. And I definitely felt that when I was playing Breaking Boundaries in Science. There was so much that I just wanted to look at. There were so many rich details that just brought the things to life and just made me say, wow. You got to play it before I did. And I was watching you interact with the with the world. You could tell you were engaged. I'm like, what are you seeing? I want to play now. Give it to me. I want to play now. Yeah. <laughs> I know at one point I was like, I wonder what they think I'm looking at right now, because I knew I was just staring at the floor, but I was looking at all these ants like circling on the ground in Jane Goodall's tent and thinking, boy, there's a lot of bugs in the jungle. I'm glad I'm not Jane Goodall, but this is fascinating. <laughs> VR, AR is kind of the, the, the up and coming technology that you see in classrooms. And some are like, yeah, they're interesting, but this one really, I mean, complete immersion into the world. And you wanted to know more about the women that worked and lived in these spaces. And I wanted to touch everything and was hoping that every little piece of it gave me another bit of their story. Yeah, I, I loved the idea of telling stories through objects. You know, as a writer, that really, that was my jam. I was very excited to see how these different snippets, these different moments from their lives would come come together and tell the complete story of what it was to be this woman and this scientist in this place. It was fun to me as well to talk to both Dan and Ethan about the philosophy behind what they do and this idea that play and fun is at the center and that you can have a powerful, valuable learning experience that is still fun. And I think you see that in their design process Mm -hmm. as well. So I was fascinated to see what they had learned as they were making the game. And I loved how thoughtful their answers were. And it really showed that they were passionate about learning just as much as they were passionate about teaching these interesting things through their games. You know, I have two young adults who were just recently teens. And when you would ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up? Video game designer. You hear that a lot from our kids who are immersed in video games. And so it's interesting to hear how varied that career path is, that there are so many options. And I think that's true in A lot of the careers we talk about, whether it's engineering or even education, 
people sometimes think the only way to be in education is be a teacher, which is a great career path, but there are so many other career paths in education. Every career has a multitude of paths that will let the student explore their passion within that field. Absolutely. So whether you're passionate about games or goldfish or finding the fountain of youth, all you need to do is pursue that passion. Learn as much as you can. Figure out the thing that's really going to get you out of bed in the morning and start doing it. So it was a little bit of a self-help podcast today. I guess it was a (laughs) self-help podcast today. Follow your dreams with Stammery. This is when we break out into an inspirational song. <laughs> you can do it today if you believe. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> All right, that's probably more than enough from the Stem Read podcast today. I think so. It's <laughs> Thanks to our guests, Ethan Psycho, Dan Norton, and Jennifer L. Holm. You can find more information on our guests in our show notes at stemread.com. If you like the STEM Read podcast, leave a review on iTunes or connect with us on Twitter. Support for the STEM Read podcast comes from Northern Illinois University. Your future, our focus. The STEM Read podcast is produced in collaboration with WNIJ. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.